And open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And while you're turning there, just remind you again, we're talking about prevailing prayer. And prevailing prayer is simply prayer that gets answers. And what, what was in my heart to begin this was because I really, at least looking at my own life, I found that God challenged me. And I've been walking with the Lord for 30-some years. And I found the Lord challenging me and asking me, when I was praying about situations, he said, do you really believe I'm going to do that? Well, God doesn't ask questions to get answers. He already knows the answer before he asks the question. He asks you questions to show you something and to get you to open your mind to something he may want to show you. And as I, before I answered and I looked in my heart, I realized, no, I don't. And, and I realized that I really sensed that that's where a lot of Christians are. We've kind of either been beaten down or we've given up on some things and we may have prayed for some things and had great hope and expectation and when we didn't see them come to pass, we either got distracted and went on to something else or we got discouraged and kind of gave up or we just drew conclusions that God doesn't really answer prayers, although we wouldn't admit that to ourselves or to anybody else, but somewhere down inside that became our attitude. And I suspect I'm not the only one in this room that's ever been in that category. So I began to get into the Word of God again and began to study it again and began to remind myself of some scriptures, began to pull some scriptures together and meditate on them. And the more I did, the more I saw about how it's so critical it is for us at this particular time in the history of this church as well as any other churches, let alone in your own life and my life, that we learn how to pray, come to God in prayers and get answers. Because prevailing prayer means you get, your, get it answered. And after all, isn't that the purpose of the kind of prayer we're talking about? You know, I remember I've shared this with you before. I remember one of the elders, he's not here anymore, uh, had led prayer one Tuesday night at our prayer meeting, and he came up to me afterwards and says, how did I do? I said, it wasn't a performance. If you're looking for my evaluation, I don't have one. Because the purpose of prayer is to get answers. We'll know how well you did when we see the answers that come. And so it's, our focus gets on all the wrong things. And so we began to look at the key scripture for this, of course, is in James chapter 5, where he says to confess your faults to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed or made whole, specifically talking about physical healing. And then he says, this is the key part of the verse, the second half of the verse, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much. And then he goes on to use as an example a man from the Old Testament, Elijah. He wasn't filled with the Spirit. He, wasn't a, he didn't have God's Spirit living in him. He didn't have the Word of God that we have now. And yet it says he prayed and it stopped raining for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and the heavens opened and it rained. And the Spirit of God is using that as an example to us of what prevailing prayer is, prayers that accomplish much. So that was a prayer that dealt with the weather, that dealt with the circumstances. And so God expects, He wants to answer our prayers. And we've looked at some things in the beginning. We looked several weeks ago at, at why does God need us to pray when God can do anything He wants to do, when God's all-powerful, all-knowing, and, and, and He already wants to do what, he, what we come to Him about. Why does He need us to pray? And we went back and we looked at that, and I'm not going to go back over that tonight. You can get the CDs or go online to the podcast. And it talks about why, you know, why does God need us to pray. And then we began to look last time in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm not going to go through the whole background there, but of course Ephesians is a wonderful book that's written to the churches at Ephesus, and it is, it is really a mini-gospel. 
It contains the promises of God in the first several chapters, and then starting around chapter, beginning of chapter 4, begins to talk about our responsibilities. And it's just, it really is a, if I had to have, my favorite book is Romans, but if I only had to have one book that I could have with me on a desert island, it would be the book of Ephesians, because it contains everything. It contains promises, it contains God's assurance, it contains statements of who we are, it contains challenges to our relationships. And then at the end, in the end of the book, the second half of chapter 6, he starts out in verse 10 by saying, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, that you may be able to stand in the, the, stand in the evil day, having stood, done all to stand. He's talking about spiritual warfare here. And we talked last time about why I'm not going to go back into that. And then he goes into the armor of God, and we're not going to go into that either, because I want to get on tonight. But then it ends having gone through the different pieces of the armor of God, which have to do with spiritual warfare. He goes to verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That's a mouthful. But what I want to focus on is he talks in here about praying always, which is in all situations, is what that means in the Greek language, with all prayer. And the word all there implies all manner. So the implication is that there are different types of prayer. And this becomes important to us because as we get into the principles of prayer, we need to understand what type of prayer we are engaging in because the different types of prayer operate by different principles because they have different purposes. And so we began to look last time, so if you don't understand the differences and you try to apply the principles of the prayer of faith to intercession, it's not going to work as well because they in some ways operate the other way. And I've had people come to me and say, am I supposed to do such and such because I'm standing in faith for a promise God's made to me? And what they're doing is they're caught up in one of the principles that applies to intercessory prayer that doesn't apply to the prayer of faith. And so if you're doing that, you're actually undercutting what you're doing. And we saw an example of that because we began to talk about the first type of prayer last week, which is the prayer of consecration, Con- Consecration. And that's a prayer where you commit your ways, your will to God's. And the greatest example of that, of course, is Jesus in the garden where he three times comes back and into, on his knees before God, submitting his will to the plan that God has and said, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, be it done according to your will. Well, if you take that prayer of surrendering of my will to God's will and you apply that in some other situation where it requires an exercise of your will, then in many cases you're surrendering your will to Satan and into his hands and not submitting it to God. And that's why many people's prayers haven't been answered because they finish their prayer, they pray this wonderful prayer, building up their confidence and end it by, if it be your will, as if I have no clue then how do I know whether I can stand on that prayer if I don't know whether God wants to answer it or not? Now, there is a place where it's appropriate to say, according to your will, but that's the prayer of consecration. When you're not looking for a result, you're not trying to believe God for something to happen, you're trying to take what you do have, your will, and like as we sang tonight, surrender it to Him. 
So that's a great example of why it's important to understand which type of prayer. Then we looked at another type of prayer last time. And if you go back into the website, you'll see the notes, our website, you'll see the notes from these with some scriptures. It's the prayer of commitment. And that prayer specifically is to take the cares of our life, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 7, and roll them over on the Lord, to not carry them around. And we spent time last week looking at scriptures about why that's so important. God does not want you carrying your cares around because those cares eventually get in your heart and begin to, to siphon off and draw off your spiritual life and your spiritual energy and your faith. And so we end up getting confused about it. Then we ended last week looking at the prayer of worship. And that's simply expressing your love to God. And you can do that riding in your car. You can do that anywhere. There's no pattern to that. There really aren't any rules to it. But, but you need to understand that that's what, that's what you're doing. Well, tonight we're going, to begin to, we're going to look at some of the others and hopefully finish these, and we're going to end up with, and I'm, we're going through all these initially because we're going to end up with the type of prayer that this series is based on and focused on. And I really felt it was important to go back and talk about what we're not talking about so we can know what we are talking about so that we can know how to apply the rules, the principles for this. All right, go with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Now, in this passage of Scripture, he's talking here about, um, starting in verse 15, he's talking about discipline within the church. You don't hear a lot about that today, do you? Well, you, what right do you have to say? Well, they had a lot of right in here. Let's just look a little bit at it. I don't want to get distracted from it. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he does not hear you, then take two or more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he refuses to hear it then, tell it to the church. Oh, that would go over big. (laughs) And if he refuses then, tell it to the church and let it to be to him as if he were a heathen or the I mean a tax collector. What he's saying here, and this is a pattern of discipline which Paul talks about to the church at Corinth. He says, if you've got a brother that's sinned, go and address it to him directly. Not publicly, address it to him directly. If he doesn't deal with, face it then, 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 then bring him before the church. This is all with the mind of getting that sinning brother to repent. God's correction is always with the intention of redeeming. And if, you, if we don't respond at one level of correction, God will raise the pressure to another level, even to the point where Paul talks to the church at Corinth. He says, because this brother hasn't responded to anything else, I've turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his soul may be saved in the day of judgment. So he said, I've pushed him to the... He's refused and refused and refused. So what I've done is I've just released him into Satan's hands so that Satan can have access to his flesh, basically so he'll die before his soul is given over totally into Satan's hands. It's with the heart of redeeming him, but he didn't get to that place because God just got mad at him and said, Satan, go sick him. He resisted the correction, resisted the correction. And these must have been the things he had to go through because Paul says the next thing is you bring him in front of the church and say, this is what the brother's done and he won't deal with it. And if that embarrassment and that 
situation doesn't do it. He says, then what you need to do is you need to kick him out of the church so that he gets a sense of what it's like to be kicked out of the body of Christ. That's where the doctrine of excommunication came from. But the doctrine of what this has as its motive, redeeming that person and bringing them back in. In fact, the brother that Paul does that to in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians says, he repented. Now bring him back into the fellowship of the church. Let Satan discourage him to the point that he gives up. So it's always with the heart of redemption. The only reason I went through that with you is this is in the context of that correction. And it doesn't hurt to know that, that in the first century, the pastor got involved in people's lives where they weren't right and dealt directly with those issues. We'll move on quickly, won't we? Verse 18. Assuredly, I tell you that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Actually, in the Greek, it says, it will be as if it had already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be as if it had already been loosed in the earth. He's talking about delegated the authority in heaven to us in this earth to exercise for God's kingdom purposes. But now I went through this because in some studies of this, you'll see that verse 19 is really part of that same idea. And it is, but he's expanding it. Verse 19, Again I say unto you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything, not just the discipline, concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. If two of you agree, this is the prayer of agreement. And this is the first one we're going to talk about tonight. The prayer of agreement. What this is saying is if the two of you, just takes two, of you agree on earth concerning anything, that word anything is a Greek word that means every undertaking. If two of you or more of you agree on earth concerning any undertaking that you're going about, that they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now this is a promise Jesus is making to his church. Now let's talk for a moment about what that word agree means. Because I've been around some Christians who have been around long enough around prayer and know something about prayer will say, well, you come to me and agree with me about this. But they don't want to tell you what it is. So how can I agree with you if I don't know what it is you're asking? And I've seen Christians that get together going to agree in prayer and when you really listen to them, they're not in agreement at all. And then they wonder why it doesn't, well, that didn't work. Well, were you really in agreement? The word agree in Greek is an interesting word. It's the word symphoneo, S-U-M-P-H-O-N-E-O, from which we get our English word symphony. And that's very, that creates a great picture of what this word means. The word in Greek, phono, means to make a sound, and sun, which is the prefix, means together. So this is making one sound 
together. But if you think about a symphony orchestra, they don't all make the same sound. Now, I'm not... I can play a piano, sort of, and I can play a guitar, sort of, but I've never studied the theory of music. But from what I understand of it, it's very mathematical, it's very, it, it's very, it, 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 it's very logical, it fits together, it's, it's almost scientific. And, and you've got harmonics and things like that, that although, and some of you know much more about this than I do, although you're not playing the same note, they have a relationship with each other that together produces a greater sound. So from what I understand, most of the music that our, our choir and our lead singers do together are in three or four parts. So they're not singing the same actual notes, but the notes there, the parts they're singing have a relationship together that creates a depth of sound. And the more parts that you have harmonizing together, the greater of the depths of sound you get. We ought to be able to understand that because if you have two eyes, you can understand that in two ears. I'm really dating myself here for some of you younger people, but I'll never forget the first time I actually heard a stereo record. Record. Some of you don't know what a record is. Some of the young people... Well, most of the young people are downstairs right now. But it was, a, it was, an, it was an LP Ooh, 33 and a third revolutions per minute. I remember 78s. And, but they weren't stereo. And 45s. And, 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 and I remember I was still where I was. I was in my uncle's house and, and he had this. And so I put the earphones on and it f- sounded as if the symphony was in the middle of my head. And I've, you know, listened to symphony music or good music before, but, but, it, but all of a sudden, it was as if I were in the, they were, it was inside of me. It was, I was in the middle of this. And I began to understand it's because, what is this, I said. And so what they've done is they've taken, in that case, I guess it was just two tracks. They would take a microphone in one section of the symphony and a microphone in the other section of the symphony, and they record the two different tracks, the two different uh, 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 horns and violins, other way around. Uh, and, 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 and so when it was heard with your ears, my left ear was hearing one part and my right ear was hearing another part and my brain has the ability to blend them together. Your eyes are the same way. Do you understand? If you have two eyes, they're not seeing me exactly the same. They're seeing from a slightly different angle. And so when, what happens is your left eye is seeing one angle, your right eye is seeing the other angle, and, w- and when it gets in your brain, your brain blends them together and gets a greater depth of field. And the same is true with, with music. When you get different parts, although they're not playing the same notes, when they're, bl- when they're in harmony with one another, they give you greater power, greater depth. And that's what that word means. It doesn't mean that everybody has to say the same thing at the same time. You can get 10 people saying the same thing at the same time, and they mean 10 different things. So they're saying the same words, but they're not in agreement with each other. So in order to be in agreement, you have to have the same goal, you have to have the same motive, you have to have the same desire. And they don't have to be expressed the same way because we're going to look at a scripture in a few minutes where, where a whole church was together praying together in one word, in one accord. And I know people well enough to know they weren't saying the same words. But they had the same goal in mind. They had the same purpose in mind. You're never going to get a group this size to be in agreement with every idea. 
But that doesn't mean we're not in harmony with each other. That doesn't mean we're not in agreement for this purpose together. And so that's what it's talking about. So you need to understand if you're going to come together and get an agreement with somebody, you've got to know a little bit about them and what they want, what their motives are. And you know, that's not always so straightforward even in your own heart. A lot of times we pray for things and with one level we want one thing and with another level we want something else. And sometimes it takes this... Well, it's interesting. I'm not going to go there. But in Hebrews it talks about that the, that the Word of God is quicker, active and more powerful than in two, any two-edged sword, able to pierce and separate the division between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Wow! That means there can be a difference between my thoughts and my intents. I can be thinking one thing and want something else. And if we ever get into the, into, the, into prayer of supplication, that's where you're asking something, and, and, and there are many times, God will have to he'll catch me, he says, what you really want in your heart is something else. And it's what, what's, you know, you look at certain prayers that Jesus talked about, it's if you believe in your heart, not your head. You know, I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I got a number of people feedback to me, they never thought of that before. You can believe one thing in your heart and something completely different in your head. You can want one thing in your head and something else in your heart. And the prayer comes out of your heart, not your head. It may be expressed with your mind, but it's the desires of your heart. It's what's in your heart, and it's what's in your heart that has to be in agreement with somebody else that you're praying for. And so that's the, basically, we could spend a lot more time on it. That's the prayer of agreement. Now, let's go to, quickly to Ephesians 4. You were there a minute ago. We may not finish this list tonight, but that's okay. So how do you get a group of this size praying together of one accord, which we'll talk about in a minute, which is united prayer. That's a different type. Ephesians 4, let's look at verse 1. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I as a prisoner, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness, gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So the Spirit of God is what binds us together in unity is what binds us together in unity. He's the unifying factor in our prayer. All right. Now, let's go. We're going to look at a second type of prayer that's very closely related to this, and it's called united prayer. And the difference between the prayer of agreement and united prayer is primarily the numbers of people. Because the prayer of agreement can be just Denny and I. In fact, you know the most powerful prayer of agreement is between a husband and wife. Because there's already a bond, there's already a unity there. Who, who God has joined together, let no man break asunder. There's one flesh, there's a binding together, and therefore a husband and wife that can come together and be in it. That's why Satan works so hard to create division between a husband and wife. Because of the power that's there in that union. 
The power of that prayer of agreement, the power of coming together and agreeing for the benefit of your children, for your household, for your finances, agreement for your grandchildren, coming together and agreeing with those things and, and that power of that prayer. And if you're not married, to find somebody, preferably of the same sex. In fact, not preferably of the same sex. Why? Because an intimacy develops when you pray together and you need to make sure it's a godly relationship. Somebody that you can be in agreement with that can stand in agreement with you about situations in your life and in their life. But then there's a place where the church comes together. This is what we do Tuesday night at 6 o'clock. Where the church comes together and comes together to be of one accord with one purpose. Go with me to to, um, Acts chapter 4. Bless you. Acts chapter 4. Two of us just agreed. You are blessed. <laughs> More of them, two of us agreed. You're blessed. You understand about the prayer of agreement? So just because somebody comes to you and says, let's agree, you need to find out what they're really asking for. So you're going to need to spend a little time investigating it. If you want, you need to make sure you're in harmony with them. That also means you're, you're getting along, you're not in strife or jealousy or envy. All those things affect that too, Matthew. Mark 11.25 talks about forgiveness being one of the keys to getting your prayers answered. Forgiving others, not being forgiven. Acts 4. Now, there's been a great threat against the church. We're going to start in verse uh, 23. So Peter, James, and John... Peter and John have been arrested. And they don't know what's going to happen to them. The church... So the church... Guess what the church does? They don't send... They don't get on Facebook... They don't get out there where they're texting, and I don't even know if they email anymore. They don't get out and do that. They actually come together. See, in our electronic social media age, we can develop the attitude, well, we don't actually need to physically come together. Yes, we do. Hebrew says, do not forsake the assembling together of yourself. Don't forsake it. All the more as you see the day of His return coming closer. Well, I don't know if it's coming sooner, but it's a whole lot sooner than when Hebrews was written. When we come physically together, and I know some of you can't, that's okay, I understand that, but when we physically come together and look in one another's eyes, when you hear the sound of somebody else praying, their voice praying, it energizes us. You can't do that on Facebook. You can't do that on Twitter. You can't do that on whatever iter there is out there. You can't even do that on FaceTime and Skype. It is physically coming together, the body of Christ, physically coming together. You like your body to be together, don't you? Isn't it more effective when your whole body's together? You know, and your leg doesn't stay in bed in the morning, or at least one of your legs, and you've got to hop around the rest of the day. Well, you know, we're kind of in the spirit together. No, you need all of it there. Well, that's true of the body of Christ here, especially when it comes to prayer. Especially when it comes to prayer. So they came together. And I know I'm being a little facetious because they didn't have all those advantages and things like that, but we cannot substitute that for our physical presence together. Being let go, verse 23, they, that's Peter and John, went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders said to them, which was basically they threatened them that they cannot speak in the name of Jesus anymore, and that day may be coming. 
that day may be coming to us. What would we do? What would we do? Would we band together? They, you know, they didn't start picketing the state house. They didn't start, you know, circulating nasty things about their electorate. They came together and prayed. When they heard this, verse 24, they raised their voice to God, look at this, with one accord. Again, it doesn't mean they all said the same thing, although we're going to read words that were what they said. I believe these words represent the substance of what was said. It may be that the James or the leader of the church at that time prayed this and they all agreed with him. I don't know exactly what happened, but it's the key is they prayed together of one accord, one heart, so their one heart was towards serving the Lord. Their one motive of goal of what they're... Because we're going to read through the prayer and we're going to see they didn't pray for what you thought they may have prayed for. Because they've been threatened. They've been threatened to be beaten, to be broken up, if disbanded, if they do anything again in the name of Jesus. So look at what their prayers. But the key first thing I want you to see is they came together of one accord. So they were in agreement. They've got the prayer of agreement. But there's greater power because they're all together praying for this one thing. With one accord. And they said, Lord, you are God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said... Notice they're going to quote a scripture back to God. That's one powerful way to pray. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? Verse 26. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before it had to be done. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants that we may be delivered from these threats and live an enjoyable, peaceful life and enjoy the blessings of God that you've given to us. That's not what it says? Then you and I wouldn't have been in agreement with them, would we? Look at what they prayed. Look at their threats. Verse 29, And grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. In other words, grant us boldness so we don't back down. They were all in agreement on that. By stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of our, your holy servant Jesus. Verse 31, And when they prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken. They weren't shaking. They weren't rolling on the floor. They weren't scrout, shouting and screaming. The building shook. Because they prayed. Of one accord. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man brings, we studied this in the Greek, makes great power available to work in that situation. The place shook. Imagine a Tuesday night prayer meeting where the building starts shaking. I know of a church years ago where they had a prayer meeting and the fire department showed up. And they came rushing in and they said, why are you here? The building's on fire. They said... No, there's no fire in here. They say, yeah, but there's flames on your roof. And they went out and looked, and there was no heat coming from the flames. 
It was the glory of God shining forth from the, out of the roof of that, prayer, of that church. And I know of other places where they heard a rushing wind come into it. An auditorium, John Bevere, I've heard him tell the story. The sound of, a, of a huge turbines roaring in the place. And the people in the sound booth said the meter never moved. So the sound was not a sound wave in this atmosphere. It was a sound in the spirit realm that their ears heard. And I know other stories like that. Why? Because God's people came together of one accord. God's people came together of one accord. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to look at this from the negative. The power of agreement. The power of being of a body, being together of one accord. And here's a case where, but this is a great example of what agreement can do. This was back before the flood. This is back... Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, which is building materials, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top reaches into the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered aboard over the face of the earth. So what this is, is this is man coming together with his, to build his own kingdom, to build his own city for his own purposes, to build it up to reach into heaven by his own effort. And this is what Satan tried to do in the garden to get them to build their own kingdom for their own purposes. And by the way, that's what he wants to do today. That's how he opposes the church. That's, what he, that's the battle in your life is because Satan wants you to build your own kingdom in your life, to establish your own rights, my way, my rights, my privileges. I didn't get my respect. I didn't get this. I didn't get that. It's all about me, what I'm entitled to. That's what this world is all about, and that's what Satan did in the garden. That's what this is all about, is for man to establish his own kingdom. When, it, when, it, when the, the reality is God's the only king, and God's the only creator, and God's the only one entitled to sit on a throne, and all of us owe everything to him, including Satan's own existence to him. And that's what they're doing. But I want you to see. So I want you to see that their purpose was not a godly purpose. It was a selfish, self-centered purpose. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, listen to this, the people are one. And they all have one language. In other words, they're of one accord. They have one purpose. And they have one language. This is another insight. They perfectly communicate with one another. This is why communication is so critical. This is why Satan works so hard to get us to miscommunicate within a marriage, to get us to miscommunicate with one another so one of us gets offended at something somebody else says because we didn't truly listen or the person speaking didn't truly understand who they were speaking to. He loves to create miscommunication because that begins to create division and that begins to get down in our heart and begins to create an attitude which now creates a division in the heart which now pulls the drain on the power of the church because he's threatened by the church. The power that's in this room right now is so 
threatening to his kingdom, that he has to work overtime to keep us divided. The power within our marriage and your marriages is so powerful, he is threatened by it to the extent that he has to work night and day to try to create divisions, disagreements. And one of the basic means he has to do that is for us to miscommunicate or lack, or for a lack of communication. Here, they perfectly communicated. And because of that, they came together with one purpose in mind, and look what God says about them. And this is what they began to do, the end of verse 6. Now, God says, nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. God's saying, because they're in agreement, they're in unity, and they're speaking the same thing, they're of one accord, even though it's an ungodly purpose, nothing they purpose to do will be restrained. No, they can do whatever the power of their agreement is, whatever they purpose to do, they'll be able to do it. So I've got to do something. What does he do? Verse 7. So come, this is the Holy Spirit and the Son, let us go down and confuse their language so that they cannot understand one another's speech anymore. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the earth and they ceased building a city. Now, if ungodly people with an ungodly purpose, motivated by Satan, can have that kind of power available to them, by God's own testimony, how much more can God's children, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking God's Word, in agreement with God's will, have power available if we will come together, if we will come together, if we will come together and be in one accord and pray. This is why Satan works so hard to keep us separated from one another. Because if the church, even this church, will come to that place, nothing we restrain, nothing can oppose the gates of hell. The gates of hell, Jesus said, cannot prevail against the church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And one of the main reasons that we haven't seen things turn around faster. We haven't seen the Lord's return come quicker. That we haven't seen our loved ones saved faster is because the church has not used the power that it has available. Instead, we've spent it picketing. We've spent it using the techniques of the world to influence man's minds. When as we've learned before and we'll learn more, the true battle we see from Scripture is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and uh, rulers of darkness and spiritual forces in heavenly places. And that's where we have much greater power. I'm not saying we shouldn't speak up against things that are wrong. Don't write me emails. I'm not saying that. But that's not where the power is. The power that the church has is in coming together and being of one accord and praying together. And we're going to have to learn to do that if it's only ultimately because our enemy becomes so clear to us and the answer is only left that we must come together and pray. You've heard before that 
the weeks after 9-11, the churches were filled. You could announce a prayer meeting and fill the churches up, but it didn't last. Why? Because they weren't there with one accord. They were there with one fear. They weren't there in faith. They were there in fear, not in faith. And I wasn't in every church, obviously. But if we were there together in faith, that when we come together and agree that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers, and we're going to hold on together until that happens, then we would see things very differently. I've read accounts of churches that got together during World War II, especially in England where they had gone through the Battle of Britain and were so much more directly threatened and began to come together and began to pray and began to pray and began to pray and began to pray. And if you've studied, and we've got people in here that are studying much more than I do, some of the events in World War II, there were things that happened to turn that war around that in the natural should not have happened. There were so-called coincidences and things, things that should have happened that didn't happen, things that didn't happen that should have happened. And I personally believe with all my heart that's because the church in certain parts of the country, certain parts of the world, were praying. We're praying. We're praying. We're praying. In 1989, the unthinkable happened to those of us that were raised in the 60s. The Iron Curtain fell. I remember sitting on watching on TV, watching the Berlin Wall come down. I remember when I was in high school when that wall went up and all that that represented. We watched the second most powerful nation in the world break apart in front of our eyes. But what many people don't realize is there were underground churches in Europe that for years had been coming together and interceding and coming against the principalities and powers that were ruling over that nation. And that's where the battle was won, first of all. That's where the power of the church was being exercised. And what we saw was a result of people on their knees coming together. Not alone, I'm sure that helped, but it's when the church came together and exercised its corporate power together. And that's why Satan wants to keep us too tired to come to church, too busy, too much, too, 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 but it's too important not to. United prayer. United prayer. The next one I want to talk about quickly is praying in the Spirit. And this is a very important one. This is why Satan works so hard to get people angry at it, teach all kinds of things about it, but I'm just going to look at Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14.2. Now, this is in the context of talking to a church about excesses in their, in their services with some of these gifts. And although he's generally talking about the spiritual gift of tongues as one of the spiritual gifts, there's a principle here. Verse 2, he who speaks in a tongue does not, and he's referring to the gift of tongues that was manifest on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands Him, and that includes the speaker. However, in the Spirit, He speaks mysteries. So, speaking in tongues, which is a heavenly language, which it talks about in uh, it talks about in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about in Acts chapter 2, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and they began 
It didn't say they just did it once. They began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There were a number of examples in the book of Acts when people were filled with the Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. I'm going to show you a scripture in a minute where Paul spoke in tongues. But, but there's an aspect of tongues which is for private prayer. And this is talking about the gift of tongues in a church service. Now, there are people that teach us that that has passed away. I've not yet found a scripture that says that. And I have a bigger problem with it because I speak in tongues. And I'm among a bunch of people that do. So if it's passed away, I'm missing something. There are some teachers out there that mean well that say it's of the devil. You better be very careful saying that something the Bible says is utterances by the Holy Ghost is of the devil unless you're extremely careful and are certain. Because Jesus told the Pharisees that to attribute something to the devil that the Holy Spirit's doing is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So I would be very careful, even if I believe that, to teach that publicly unless I were so absolutely certain I was right, I'm ready to stand before the Lord tonight and give an account of that. I don't want to dwell on this a whole lot, but this is one of the reasons Satan creates such a furor over this is because he can't understand what you're saying to God. It frustrates him because you're talking to God and he doesn't know what you're talking about. Let's look over, still in chapter 14, let's look over verse 14. Oops, I just skipped the chapter. Paul says this, For I pray in a tongue, if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So there's a type of prayer where you're praying in the Spirit. Jude talks about build yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, praying in the Spirit. It's a way to, it's like an inner battery that gets charged when you do it. It just, you, because why? Your spirit man is communing with God without your mind being involved. Your mind, we learned this in the course on renewing their mind, your mind is a gate that controls what gets down into your spirit, but it also controls what comes up out of your spirit that you speak out and that you understand. Because when you begin to pray something, something the Spirit of God begins to show your spirit something in there that you're either to do or give yourself some understanding of something, and it begins to float up, and your mind tries to grasp it so it can do something with it. If it doesn't fit in with what your mind likes or what your mind believes, it'll start pushing it back down again. So the Spirit of God is trying to push it up and your mind saying no. So what praying in tongues goes, it goes around your mind. And your mind likes to be in control if it's like my mind. My like, mind likes to understand. It's nosy. It wants, to have its, it wants to have its nose in everything I do. It wants to tell me how to do things. It wants to control everything. And when there's something going on between God and me and my mind's not involved, it'll, it, until you're used to it, it'll give you fits. And you say, well, you're just sounding like a baby. You're just literally... And I've just learned to tune it out and just not pay any attention to it because it feels so good. <laughs> it strengthens me. So Paul says, I do this more than all of you. He said in verse 15, what's the conclusion then? I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my understanding. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the understanding. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. 
I'm going to tell you what this verse says, and I'm going to tell you what it doesn't say, and I'm going to tell you what it may say, but I don't know whether it says. Don't get confused. Verse 26 is talking about prayer. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. That word is, means in the Greek an infirmity, which means not sickness. It means an inability to produce results. Now, we don't have time to go back through all of chapter 8, but all of, most of chapter 8 is talking about the role of the Holy Spirit to help us to do what we can't do in our own flesh, in our own understanding. And he starts by saying, you couldn't get saved by your own strength. For what, for, for, um, for what the law could not do because of, the spirit of, because of your flesh, God did. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death because what the law could not do because of the weakness, because of the, the, the infirmity, because of the inability of my flesh, the, the lack of strength in my flesh, the law couldn't make me righteous because my flesh wasn't strong enough to obey it. So what I couldn't do with my flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned my sin in His flesh so that the requirement of the law may be fulfilled in me who walks not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So He goes on and says, but, but, but if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. So most of Romans is talking about what we can't do because of our own strength, because of our own flesh, our own limitations. God sent His Spirit into us to give us His strength and His ability to make up for the weakness that we have because we're human and we have a flesh. That's what likewise means. Because likewise means, in the same way I've already been talking about it, that same principle applies here. And he says, likewise, the Spirit helps our weakness. And what's the weakness we have when it comes to prayer? For we don't know what we should pray as we ought. Literally in the Greek is that we don't know the what to pray. So many situations where we see an urgent situation, we just launch into prayer. In reality, we don't know what to pray because the real issue isn't what I'm seeing with my eyes. The real issue is in the spirit realm that my natural eyes can't see it. You notice there were sometimes some situations for healing where Jesus spit on their, on their tongue or laid hands on them. Some cases he spit spoke to them. In some cases, he cast the devil out of the same symptoms. Well, why didn't he just do the same thing in each case? Why? Because he had the spirit of discernment. He could see into the spirit realm what the real issue was. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And so when we're dealing with a situation where we don't know the what to pray, God's made provision for that because he's given us his spirit to help us. And how does he help us? For we know not what we should pray as we are, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us or together with us with groanings that cannot be entered. The word help there is a compound Greek word that's made up of three basic parts combined together. And Greek's great at that. It takes three different concepts and it piles them all together and mixes the meaning together. And literally what it means is to take hold together with against something. And the idea is if you've run out of gas on 195 and the exit where there's a gas station is about an eighth of a mile up there and you get out there behind your car, you know, and your wife's behind the wheel and you're going to try to push this thing and you're trying to get it going 
and, and, and you can't make it, you're just not getting anywhere, and all of a sudden bright lights come behind you, and two strong men, ushers from here, get out and say, may I help you? May I help you? And you say, please. And what they do is they grab the back of your car on either side and they take hold together with you against what you didn't have the strength to do. When it comes to the power in prayer, the Holy Spirit is the power of God to pray through you the perfect will of God, because that's what he goes on to say. Because he knows the perfect will of God in a situation. Now, I went through that because some people teach that the groanings that are, cannot be heard is the Spirit of God praying when you pray in the Spirit. And I've got to tell you, that may be true. It may not be true. That doesn't say so. And if something doesn't say so, I'm going to tell you it doesn't say so. I pers- excuse me, I, what, I, what I draw from it is this. Whether it's praying in tongues or not, the Spirit's helping me when I pray. And that's what's important. So I'm not going to throw this out because some people say it's in tongues. I personally do believe so, but I can, I'm not going to teach as a doctrine because it doesn't actually say that. It says the Spirit prays with groanings that literally in the Greek it says are inarticulate to our ears. But I share that with you as part of this teaching on praying in tongues because it, it clearly does engage the Holy Spirit when we pray in the Spirit, when we're praying, especially when you're interceding in a situation. We're going to have to close here. Next week we're going to pick up with two more kinds and then we're going to lead into what we're really here to talk about, which is the prayer of intercession. We'll talk next week about the prayer of faith which operates under very different principles, and the prayer of supplication, and then we're going to get into the prayer of intercession. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your grace and your goodness, and we ask you to take what we've heard and the understanding that we've gleaned from your word tonight and trust the Holy Spirit to begin to work in our hearts a depth of understanding, not with our mind, but again, inspiring us, challenging us to come and pray. For Lord, we understand that the only way we're going to truly learn how to pray is by praying and allow you to direct us, encourage us, inspire us, and even correct us. And so we trust, Father, the seed that's been sown into our lives right now to the Holy Spirit to take it, breathe on it, water it, make it real to take root and produce a harvest in our lives especially our prayer lives of 30, 60, and 100-fold. In Jesus' name, amen.